Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 24, a comedy about love in the 90s. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. In this episode, I'm continuing my series of posts an episode that I'm calling 1994, the most important year of the 90s, with a look at a movie that has, in the 20 years since it was released, become an unofficial official snapshot of life in the 90s, at least for those who are entering what we refer to as the real world, and that's the Winona Ryder, Ethan Hawke movie, Reality Bites. But first, emails. This time around, I have an email from Trentus Magnus, who is the host of one of the flat-out best podcasts out there, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, which is part of the growing network of podcasts known as Two True Freaks, and you can find that over at twotruefreaks.com. Trentus writes, Hello, Tom. Loved the singles episode. Oddly enough, though, I don't especially like singles as a film all that much, but before you reach through this email and choke me to death, though... I ask that you hear me out. As you pointed out, some of the cast simply didn't look the part of early 20-somethings. That bugged me when I first watched the movie, and it bugs me now. But I think the other reason I don't care for the movie is because I didn't connect with it. And that could be because I lived it myself. Maybe I'm guilty of being slow in the uptake, but I guess I didn't realize how uncommon my early 20-something experience was. While I never struggled with PCSD as I didn't actually graduate from college, I was as aimless as anybody else. The difference was that when I got out on my own, I actually had what was apparently a pretty interesting time because I had weird friends, I was pretty friendly with my neighbors, I hung out with a rocker dude fairly often, I had dates that became relationships that vanished overnight, I had car crashes and everything else. Hell, there was a point when I first started seeing one particular girl that every time she and I went out together, I always bumped into somebody I hadn't seen in forever, and we ended up chatting. That girl must have thought I was some kind of baller. Baller. Remember when people used to say that? I do. Anyway, basically the only thing that happened in singles that never happened to me was knocking some chick up and then losing the baby in a car crash, and I don't see that as a bad thing. My point, though, is that you did a great job with this episode. Your reminiscences for that period for your life combined with the discussion about the movie made me recall parts of the movie I do enjoy, mostly the music. And my own experience as as an early 20-something, which until now I hadn't realized was so interesting and unusual. Great podcast, great episode, lots of fun. Hold your head high, sir. You did a great job. His Excellency Magnus. I want to say that I really appreciated this email especially since Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is such an awesome show. And while compliments from anyone are always great, compliments for someone whose work you respect and admire are even better. And I'm glad that even though you might not particularly love singles as a film, it makes you think of at least something. Uh, Some movies do that to you. They might not be particularly great, but they are touchstones, I think is the right word here. They remind you of a place or a time, and that's why you came to appreciate them, even if they are inherently flawed. Uh, an easy one for me, just to get a quick example out there, would be another Cameron Crowe movie, Jerry Maguire. I have not watched this movie in a good 15 years or so, but 
from what I remember, and I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't hold up very well if I watched it now, or at least all of it wouldn't hold up. But I will always appreciate the movie for the fact that I went to see it with my wife, and it's the first movie that we ever saw together uh, when we were dating back in 1996. It's an incredibly easy example, I know, and there's probably much better, much more complicated examples out there, but to me, sometimes it's the appeal of popular culture. It's just kind of wrapped up in a little bit of a nutshell. You know, you you attach yourself to something in some way or another, even if it's entertainment value is marginal at best. Another thing I found funny is that in doing this series of episodes about PCSD movies, I've actually come to wonder if the term PCSD is actually appropriate. I jokingly coined it a number of years ago, and I'm, I know I'm taking credit for it because I did think of it. <laughs> I don't know. But I was watching like The Graduate, Insane Must Fire, and Singles and Reality Bites, which are all literally post-college films. Um, singles, not as much as the other three, but still. Uh, but there are so many people who identify with the characters in these movies who never went to college and yet can find common ground. So maybe it's post-adolescent stress disorder, PASD? I mean, we're getting into semantics, really, with it. And just don't take offense if I call it post-collegiate stress disorder. Um... Because I'm really just talking about your early 20s. And I coined the phrase when I was a dipshit 23-year-old anyway. I wasn't trying to be exclusionary. I was just being a dipshit 23-year-old. And, you know, who isn't a dipshit at some point or another when they're 23, right? So, thank you very much for the email. And if you would like to email or leave a comment on the Facebook page or any of the blog posts, please do so. They'll more than likely get read on the air. I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, when I come back, I'll start talking about Reality Bites. Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins, like, miniseries that, I, that I'm uh, going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead-up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up! <laughs> Sorry about that, it's the dog. <laughs> Brendan's Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality every Tuesday at TwoTrueFreaks.com No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. Hello, you've reached the winter of our discontent. I'm uh, making this documentary about my friends, but it's really about people who are trying to find their own identity without having any real role models or heroes or anything. It seems like your friends would be perfect for that. I truly believe that if we can get two women on the Supreme Court, we can get at least one on you, Sam. I lost my job. Why did you get a job at Burgerama? I was valedictorian of my university. Well, you don't have to put that down on your application. Do you have any idea what it means to be a cashier at Wiener Schnitzel? There you go, sir. And have a tune, Wiener dude. A couple of smokes, a cup of coffee, and a little bit of conversation. You and me and five bucks. You got it. 
He's strange, he's sloppy, he's a total nightmare for women. I can't believe I haven't slept with him yet. Are you religious? I guess I'm uh, a non-practicing Jew. Hey, I'm a non-practicing virgin. Did he dazzle you with his extensive knowledge of mineral water? He's not a yuppie. What is your glitch, huh? My glitch? Then why are you acting like a jealous boyfriend all of a sudden? Hi. You look beautiful. You you look like you look like a doily. So, one of the challenges of doing a series of posts and episodes about 1994 is that I actually find myself under some sort of weird pressure to be topical. How could that be possible when 1994 was 20 years ago and you couldn't possibly have to be topical, you ask? Well, about a week before I recorded this episode, Reality Bites actually turned 20. Uh, and there was a slew of posts and blogs and articles and webs- on websites about the movie. And some of them are quite good. I'll-, I'll link to them in the show notes. But I have to admit that I feel a pang of regret, or I felt a pang of regret, that I hadn't gotten this episode out sooner because there was a specific anniversary date I missed. Then I thought, well, screw that noise. I mean, this isn't like I'm reviewing a movie in theaters. Now, and I'm missing my deadline by a month. Reality Bites came out 20 years ago. Am I appreciating this movie now as opposed to a week or two earlier or a week or two later? It doesn't make it any less valid. Besides, the reason I picked this movie for an episode at this time in the year was that I knew it was going to be an easy one to put together. (laughs) I didn't have to rent or purchase the movie because I've had it since the mid-90s, first on VHS and then on the 10th anniversary DVD release, which came out in 2004. And I'm here to have fun with this, you know, not cover something because I have to cover it. That being said, these retrospectives are great because they mean I don't have to spend a whole heck of a lot of time doing backstory on the movie. I'll do a little bit, but if you want a pretty extensive look at the movie's origins, check out the featurettes and commentary on the 10th anniversary DVD. I believe there's also a 20th anniversary DVD and Blu-ray release, which probably has some of the same stuff. Or go to hitfix.com, which has put together an oral history of the movie. I'll I'll link to that in the show notes because it's insightful, it's fun to read, uh, and and it's worth your time. Now, the Reader's Digest version of the movie's origin story is that screenwriter Helen Childress wrote a film that was based on her friends and her own personal experiences during the time in her early 20s when she was first on her own. And, of course, if you're talking about the early 1990s, which was a time when the economy was trying to get itself out of a pretty bad recession, that meant many young people who entering the workforce were finding that they had to settle for what jobs were available and not the jobs they necessarily wanted. Douglas Copeland often referred to these as Mick Jobs in his novel Generation X, which is where the generation kind of gets its name. So what was happening was that people were coming out with uh, with education, with with uh, you know high school, college educations, and they and in the case of college graduates, they weren't being offered salaries in the mid forties or fifties with signing bonuses and stock options like some of my friends were in the latter part of the decade. 
they were tending bar. They were working unpaid internships if if they could find one in their field. They were working retail. They were working whatever um, they could do to make money, and they were trying to get whatever foot in the door position for the industry they wanted to work in, even if it paid very little or nothing at all. Um, a lot of people by then they were scraping by, barely paying rent and bills, and. Uh, you know, a quality beer, for instance, would be whatever was on special at that shit dive bar you frequented. Not the microbrew that you post that about on Untapped. Some of my friends do. Universal, uh, Universal Studios picked up Childress's screenplay. Uh, it eventually went to Ben Stiller, who at that time was primarily known for the Ben Stiller show, which, by the way, if you've never watched that, is some of the best sketch comedy um, ever, especially out of the early 1990s. Um, and I think that it is on DVD, so I would recommend picking that up. But Ben Stiller was chosen to direct. This was his directorial debut. Eventually, the cast was put together, and that's where one known a writer, as Lelena Pierce, who is the valedictorian of her college class, trying to get a job in media, specifically television, while also documenting the lives of her friends as they struggle to make it. Ethan Hawke is Troy Dyer, the perpetually unemployed, greasy-haired slacker. Jeanine Garofalo is Vicky Miner, the quick-witted pop-kitch devotee who currently manages the Gap. And Steve Zahn is Sammy, their gay friend. The film in itself seems pre-packaged as a Generation X piece. Each of the characters represents the different types of people you might come across at the time. And as we'll see when taking a close look at the movie... There's more depth to it than that. Now, Reality Bites was uh, released on February 18th, 1994. It opened in fifth place with $6 million with the Steven Seagal movie On Deadly Ground, raking in the most money that particular weekend. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Steven Seagal, back in the early 90s, you forget, could carry the box office. I mean, in the dead of winter, but could carry the box office. Anyway, it made $20.9 million at the box office. It finished 63rd overall in the uh, box office. That's a few places behind Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and The Air Up There, which is that movie where Kevin Bacon goes to Africa and recruits, like, Takemi Matumbo or somebody. Um and a couple of it finished a couple of spaces ahead of the Cowboy Way, that Kiefer Sutherland movie, and with honors. Uh, and with honors is a film I'll definitely take some sort of look at later in the year because um, that was a date night standard for a little while in '94 um, into '95. For reference, by the way, your top grossing movie of 1994 was, of course, Forrest Gump, with the if not one of the definitive movies of the 1990s finishing in. 10th place for the year in terms of overall box office, and that's Pulp Fiction. So why didn't anyone see this movie if it has become a go-to Gen X 20-something flick? Well, in short, you have to kind of look at how that particular group of people didn't like being categorized the way they were categorized, or how they saw through a lot of the absolutely terrible marketing ideas that were aimed at them. In Pretty in Pink, The Golden Age of Teenage Movies, a book I've referenced several times over whenever I've covered teen movies in this podcast, Jonathan Bernstein mentions this, and two of the examples he brings up are Coke's OK Cola and this Subaru commercial. I'm talking about my new Subaru Impreza and explain its relevance to you and me and the car business, okay? Okay. 
This car is like punk rock. Now, now, just trust me, this is relevant. Do you remember when rock and roll was really boring and corporate? Well, punk challenged all this and said, hey, excuse me, but here's what's cool about music, remember? Now, Subaru, with this Impreza, is challenging some car thinking here. This car is all about reminding you and me what's great about a car and moving forward and making cars better and less disappointing. Just like punk, except it's cars. Oh, I just thought of another analogy. By the way, uh, the actor in that commercial is a very young Jeremy Davies who would go on to play Daniel Faraday on Lost. Anyway, um, a combination of media savvy and, well, really shitty marketing <laughs> meant that it was tough to sell Generation X to Generation Xers. In fact, Generation Xers hated and probably still hate that label. Um, and I'm honestly only using it because I just need a point of reference that everyone can follow. But put a movie like this in front of an already, already cynical audience, and it's like you're presenting someone with really crappy food and saying, You see, it's got uh, raisins in it. You like raisins. But really, it really is like your mom or your grandma giving you something and saying, I know how much you like those movies with the rock soundtracks. You're not going to react well to it. And I can imagine that people in their early 20s might have been turned off to it in the same way that, you know, I stopped watching the real world in 2000 or 2001 because I was in the real world and why the hell am I watching this show that's nothing like the real world and with people who are absolutely insufferable? But I didn't see Reality Bites for the first time when I was in my early 20s. I saw it when I was 17. Not in the theater, mind you. Um, I actually didn't see the film until it came out on video. In fact, I remember the day I rented it because I walked into Video Empire looking for it, and the clerk uh, happened to be watching the store's only copy because um, Video Empire was a mom-and-pop video store, and it wasn't like Blockbuster where you had 20 copies of her new release in the shelves. You had one, maybe two, if it was like a big Blockbuster. Anyway, she reluctantly gave it to me. <laughs> But I had to take it back the next day anyway. She probably watched it the next day. And that's the mom and pop, you know. Um, and I I have waxed poetically and nostalgically about Sable's Video Empire before. To the point where I remember my customer number, 1729. Uh, because that is the place where I cut my teeth as a movie fan. Because they had everything. Um, and and their selection of old movies was astounding, and and I didn't have to wade through fifty copies of the latest Michael Bay piece of shit to get to the movie that I wanted to see. But I'll get a little more in depth with my personal experiences and thoughts about the movie after I take us through it. So our movie opens with Lelena Pierce, played by Winona Ryder giving the valedictory speech at her college graduation. She rants and she raves about how their parents' generation, the baby boomers, obviously threw away all of their ideals in the name of selling out, and they've left the world an absolute shit show for them to try and fix. Then she says to her fellow graduates, she has the answer, and the answer is... Well... She fumbles with her index cards because apparently she forgot her graduation speech or she's forgotten her notes or something got messed up. And then she says, the answer is, I don't know. And this gets huge applause. And you know, I've heard quite a number of valedictory speeches over the years. I teach high school. I have to go to graduation every year. And they're usually pretty forgettable. Some of them talk about the future. Many of them talk about memories everyone will have. They all promise the graduating class of the future will be very good for all of them. And I think the worst one I ever heard was one at my sister's graduation where the guy speeching literally quoted life's little instruction book for the better part of 10 minutes. 
He was one of my sister's friends. He was a total, total douche nozzle as it is. Anyway, but most valedictory speeches are forgettable. And every once in a while, though, some valedictorian will make a this world sucks, damn the man, save the empire sort of speech, and it'll make the news. Uh, there was one a few years ago where some girl raised in this nice little upper middle class community in upstate New York, which is really hard to grow up in, by the way, right? Um, railed about how the public school system was an institution of slavery or some shit. You know, the kind of thing that has a complete lack of perspective. And, you know, every time something like that happens, I think of the opening scene of this movie. And now compare this to Diane Court's speech at the beginning of Say Anything, where she seems to go off script a little bit and says about entering the real world, I am really scared. That's genuine. It comes about mainly because her joke is about going back, because I've seen the real world and all I can say is go back. It comes because that joke fell flat, completely flat. In fact, the only person who laughs at it is her father. And she looked out all among the faces of the crowd and barely recognized anyone. So she decided to step that moment that being honest was the best thing to do. Here, it does seem that Lelena is being quite honest, admitting the same thing, and there's no direction for her or her peers. But having seen this movie more times than I can remember, I have to say, the shuffling of her cards, losing her place, the I don't know, is so perfect an ending for the speech, I swear she planned it that way. Like, it was a piece of performance art. Like, guys, I'm going to pretend to lose my place and say I don't know, and it's going to be so awesome, and it's going to blow everybody's mind. It's a clue into her character as someone who is, in a sense, earnest and idealist, but also really, for lack of a better term, has her head up her own ass a little too much. And that's very 22 years old, really, when you think about it. And I'm rambling two minutes into the movie. I'm sorry. But the next scene, we go from graduation, then we go to the scene where, where Lelena and Sammy and, and Troy and Vicky are hanging out on the roof of the skyscraper in downtown Houston and getting completely plastered and saying shit like, Hey, Sammy, what's your goal? My goal is that... Like a, like a career or something. And this is our introduction to four of our five main characters. We've already le- met Lelena, and we have her best friend Vicky, played by Janine Garofalo. And uh, Vicky, uh, Janine Garofalo, at this point, um, is now is pretty well known. And I recognized her from the Ben Stiller show, um, and because she was the she was the female lead in the Ben Stiller show. In fact, I think the only person from the Ben Stiller show who does not have at least one sort of small role in this is Bob Odenkirk, because Andy Dick plays um, somebody later in the movie. Sammy, Steve's on the gay friend, and like I said, he's the gay friend, and, and I hate to be all Sammy is the gay character, but it's kind of the case to a certain degree, because Sammy's whole storyline, aside from being kind of making wisecracks and stuff, is about his being gay. And rounding out the group is Troy and Ethan Hawke, um, who had, I think had been in Dead Poets Society and some random movie called Mystery Date, um, and otherwise, you know, would go on to several movies, um, most notably, and I think if you don't recognize him from uh, Reality Bites, you recognize him from Richard Linklater's trilogy of Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. I've seen the first two and um, might watch the other three just out of curiosity or masochism because, look, I know there are people out there who love Before Sunrise, but the word pretentious comes to mind. And I like Richard Linklater, but yeah, 
Maybe I won't see the third one. Anyway, Troy, uh, Troy isn't a graduate. He's a slacker hipster. He chooses to spout stuff like... It's one of the first of many moments where when I was watching this for this podcast and just writing down notes, I wrote, shut up, Troy, in my notes. And I have to say, especially as I go on, I've often wondered at the fact that while this movie was made in earnest, it can also years down the line be read as satire. The characters in this movie, like I said, they fit, seem to fit some sort of stereotype of people in their early 20s who belong to Generation X. And that's what quite a bit of the movie's dialogue seems like, too. We get a little bit of that at the graduation dinner where Lelena, Troy, and her divorced divorced parents, who are played by Joe Don Baker and Susie Kurtz, who are both excellent in this movie, you know, talk to her. And, and Joe Don Baker, her father, gives her his new wife's old BMW as a graduation present, the exact type of car she railed against in her graduation speech. And this starts a fight between the two divorced parents. Lolina has to play peacemaker, and you kind of get this—you um, get the this sense that that she's always done this between her parents. In fact, it comes up later when she explains what her life was like after the parents' divorce. That she was the one who played the paid the bills and made every, sure everything was was okay, while her sister went and got drunk before junior high, and you know, mom was depressed and all these other stu- things. And um, and you get that a little bit in in this scene because she's obviously been been brokering peace between the two of them for years the one of the best parts of the scene by the way though is uh Lelena's mother's new husband who's played by Harry O'Reilly who's just this big dumb doofus and for some reason he like needs his steak cut up for him at one point in the scene after the spat over the BMW subsides and Lelena's kind of gotten everybody to sit down and eat their dinner calmly he looks at her he says you should buy a Ford like (laughs) it's just brilliant timing because it's like you know because <laughs> cause Baker and Jodan Baker and Susie Kurtz really get the tension going. It's 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 and, and this just kind of like you're sitting there going like, wait, what? And somebody who clearly isn't fucking paying attention to what's going on. After this, we have our first montage in which we see the various characters going to work. Troy leaves some hookup in the morning. The morning after, and in a blink and you'll miss it mo- moment the girl he had hooked up with and leaves the morning after is played by Renee Zellweger uh, he then goes to his new job at a newsstand where we see him reading existential philosophy because Troy is the type of guy who would read existential philosophy while sitting behind a newsstand uh, Vicky the queen of 70s kitsch wakes up from a one night stand of her own she grabs her journal she tries to remember the name of the guy she slept with and she writes Rick with a question mark Lelena runs around the house and MacGyvers some toilet paper into a coffee filter before heading out to her job as a production assistant at Good Morning Grant a local morning talk show hosted by John Mahoney who is grumpy and gruff off camera, but a happy morning show host guy on camera. He especially hates Lelena, reminding her day after day, at, at screw up after screw up, that her job is expendable. They're looking to get rid of people, and he hopes it's going to be her. Later on, Lelena and Vicky are driving down the street in Lelena's BMW. They've got the top rolled down. They're singing 
tempted by a squeeze, and they're passed by Michael Greats, who is played by Ben Stiller and his massive wall of Elaine Bennis hair. And Lelena, um, in the middle of this sort of sing-along to Tempted and, and seeing Michael kind of pull up in his, I think he's driving a sob and he's blasting some sort of gangster rap or whatever, she chucks her cigarette out of the window and she doesn't realize that when she does that, she actually throws it into Michael's car. And this causes him to freak out and he crashes into her. Later on at Michael's office, when which is the music video channel In Your Face TV, it's like MTV with an edge, um, they talk about insurance and lawyers. We see that Michael is much the type of guy who, he wants to be cool. Because like if you look at his decor in the office, it's got this vintage Dr. Zayas figure. It's got all this other stuff. Lolina breaks the Dr. Zayas figure, by the way. Um, and... And he he seems reluctant to sue her. In fact, he seems more interested in asking her out. And they do make a connection, and eventually he'll call um, her, and and they'll they'll have a date set up. There's one complication though, and that complication is Troy, and the fact that Troy has been fired from his job at the newsstand because he took a Snickers off the shelf and ate it without paying for it. So, um, he, Lelena comes home and he's moving in and she's not happy. And, uh, in fact, she turns to, she has one of the best lines in the, in the movie. She turns to Vicky and says, he will turn this place into a den of slack. Um, again, there are, there are some great lines in this movie. And I think that's one of the more memorable things about, about it. Now, one of the things that goes through the whole movie that I should note is while we have a romantic storyline that will center around the struggle between Michael and Troy for Lelena's affection, we also have this personal storyline for Lelena about the film that she's making about her friends. Uh, much of this film is shot through her video camera, and she's basically trying to document the four of them in their post-college lives trying to make it in the world. It becomes a huge plot point later, especially with Michael, but... We see several scenes, and including a bong session at the house where Troy and Lelena gripe at each other, and then Vicky just turns to them and says, Oh, would you two just do it and get it over with? I'm starving. Lelena, being the only one who's sober, <laughs> drives the gang to the gas station uh, where they can cure their munchies, because they have the munchies, with gas station snacks, because one of the gifts that her father gave her in addition to the BMW was his gas card. And he says, I'll pay this for a year. I was like, all right. So she takes the gas card and she goes there. That'll come up later too. While they're there, the Nax My Sharona starts playing on the radio. We get one of the more famous scenes in the movie. Lelena, Vicky, and Sammy dancing in the gas station's convenience store while Troy gives a nonplussed smile to the clerk. Uh, the clerk's played by John O'Donohue, who was an extra and a minor cast member on The Ben Stiller Show. Michael and Lelena go out on their date with Michael meeting the gang while he's waiting for Lelena to get ready. The gang is sitting around a television drink, playing a drinking game with some friends where they have to come up with the premises for different episodes of the old television show Good Times. And if they can't, they take a drink. After the couple leaves on the date, uh, because not without a nice little spat between Lelena and Troy, because Troy's obviously acting like a jealous boyfriend, on their date, there's some awkward conversation 
which I think is done very well. A cameo by Helen Childress, the screenwriter. She's their waitress. A discussion of the cultural significance of the Big Gulp while Elena and Michael sit in the backseat of his convertible listening to Baby, I Love Your Way by Peter Frampton. And then Michael and Lelena begin making out, and Troy happens to walk by, and he gives Lelena shit for not for going so far on the first date, fully establishing our love triangle. Then we see a little more of Troy on Lelena's documentary, take, talking about how he takes pleasure in the details. My parents got divorced when I was uh, five years old. And I saw my father about three times a year after that. And when he found out that he had cancer, he decided to, to bring me here. And he gives me this big pink seashell. And he says to me, son, the answers are all inside of this. And I'm all in But then I realized, I realized that the shell's empty. There's no point to any of this. It's all just a, a random lottery of meaningless tragedy and a series of near escapes. So I take pleasure in the details. You know, a quarter pounder with cheese. Those are good. The sky is out. Ten minutes before it starts to rain moment where your laughter becomes a cackle. And I sit back and I I smoke my camel straights. And I ride my own milk. And again, throughout this movie you want to tell Ethan Hawk just to shut the hell up, really. But I will say that one of the things that does make you feel for Troy, on at least some level, is that his father is back in Chicago. And he's in the hospital, he's dying of prostate cancer. And there's an obviously a lot of anger inside him that is being channeled into this sort of shithead persona because he's dealing with that. He's dealing with the grief from that. But really, shut up, Troy. Vicky, meanwhile, um, has to go get an AIDS test because a friend of hers uh, tested positive. She calls it the rite of passage for our generation. And, and you have to remember, this is the early 1990s, so AIDS, the AIDS crisis, age education was at its height. Um, and, and this is... a uh, this is a clip of Lelena's movie that um, where she's going for the AIDS test that she and producer, the producer of Good Morning Grant show Grant because the producer actually really likes it but Grant's like no I'm not showing this on my show I need happy and funny and then he turns around and he's like you know I told you to fire her anyway and I have to wonder sometimes that what made her think that he'd actually accept it for viewing on the show and then I have to wonder why she thought getting him back by replacing all of the question cards for his next guest with prank ones that imply that he's a pedophile wouldn't get her fired <laughs> or perhaps even blacklisted from other stations. Because this is exactly what happens. Um, I don't know if she's blacklisted. It's not implied, but she is fired. Uh, and then for the next 10 minutes of the movie, she's going to go on interview after interview and in all sorts of jobs and come up completely short. But before that, she tells her friends that she was fired, and Vicky is like so excited. She's like, "Oh, you're hired!" Um, 
you know, I need a part-timer. It's only a little bit of money, but, you know, it could it could definitely help. And Lelena's hemming and hawing, and Vicky's kind of like, you know, what's the big deal? And she's like, well, I'm not going to work at the Gap, for Christ's sake. And Vicky just responds by going, oh, I'm so sorry to bring you down to my level. And she runs into her room and shuts the door. And Troy takes Lelena out to cheer her up. They just go for a walk, and he gives her this tour of the places where he'd been fired from. And then he gives this what's quite possibly one of the most genuine things that he says in at least the first half of the movie. You see, Laney, this is all we need. A couple of smokes, a cup of coffee, and a little bit of conversation. You and me and five bucks. You got it. And then he ruins it because he tries to kiss her, he tries to make out with her. Again, shut up, Troy. Again, there's tension, there's awkwardness between the two of them, and we have the job interview montage. Uh, there's some great cameos in these scenes, by the way. Andy Dick plays the guy who runs a porno tape pirating business. Keith David plays a radio se- station exec. And Mira, who is Ben Stiller's mother, plays the editor of a newspaper who asks her to find irony. Define irony. Irony, uh, irony. And then when Elena goes to see Troy, he defines it for her. Oh my god, I've never been so glad to see anyone in my entire life. This day has been the biggest nightmare. I mean, these job interviews, Troy, the word vivisection, a staggering understatement. I mean, can you define irony? It's when the actual meaning is the complete opposite from the literal meaning. And then he leaves. Her bravado is embarrassing. Nowhere to turn, Lelena asks her mom for money and gets a speech about how times are tough, sugar booger, and how you're just going to have to work hard and get a job. And we see Lelena sink so low as to interview for a job at Der Wiener Schnitzel, uh, where David Spade plays the manager who's so into being the manager of Der Wiener Schnitzel. Uh, I mean, like, think of Judge Reinhold. So you want to work at All American Burger uh, in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but like smarmier because it's David Spade. <laughs> He's like throwing numbers out at her. There's one point where there's a guy kind of standing there and he walks up to the guy and says, Hey, buddy, you got time to lean. You got time to clean. And he hands him like a broom or whatever. And he ends the scene with, Miss Pierce, there's a reason I've been here for six months, you know, and, and, and it's, it's a great, it's a great little scene. And this all puts Lelena into a state of, serious depression uh she just starts sitting at home watching television first she watches wedgie the the in-your-face tv version of house of style which is hosted by a uh, gene triplehorn who does a dead-on cindy crawford impersonation it is it is just quite possibly one of the funniest things I, I, i've seen in in the film and then flipping channels around she comes across uh the LaToya Jackson psychic hotline commercial. She calls the psychic hotline and proceeds to rack up a $400 phone bill from 900 calls. Uh, when confronted by Vicky and Sammy about it, Lilena rants and raves about how it's her apartment and how Vicky should be thanking her for letting her move in. And Vicky scoffs and says, okay, Lilena needs some fresh air because you know, you are in the bell jar. Um, so Lilena goes to see her dad for money. He tells her that she, no, he's not going to give her. She just needs to be more creative. Think outside of the box. And what does she do to be creative? 
She hustles for money at the gas station. She comes up with a scheme where she pays for other people's gas with a gas card and pockets the cash they give her, which I'm sure she could be arrested for doing nowadays, but whatever. Um, I have to say that this scene, which is set to a song that was only written for the actual scene called Gas Card, uh, which is by World Party, which is a really catchy song, and I kind of wish it was on the soundtrack. Uh, Winona Ryder, um, she's really cute in the scene. It's like this is this is where I think my crush on Winona Ryder when I was seventeen came from. Like this particular scene in Reality Bites, because you're just like, okay, that's Lolina, you know. Um, so, so yeah. Anyway, Troy comes home later with a girl, and they get into an. He gets into an argument with Lolina, um, kind of that mirrors the argument that she got into Troy when Michael picked her up. On their first date, Lelena and Vicky then go to a diner to blow off some steam. Vicky worries about possibly having AIDS. She has a great line about how she'll be like, you know, she's imagining herself as like the AIDS character on Melrose Place, and everybody shows up to her funeral about, you know, having learned something, and they're all wearing chokers and halter tops or something like that. And while they're having this conversation, Michael calls Lelena tells her that he showed some of the network execs at In Your Face uh, tapes, the tapes, the documentary tapes, and they loved it. They wanted to produce a film for them. And um, he then tells her he loves her and he finds her amazing. And, and she says, I think you're amazing too. So she goes to work at In Your Face, you know, editing the show. And, and Vicky's AIDS test turns out to be negative. And we then get a scene uh, where Sammy and Vicky rehearse Sammy's coming out to his mother. Ma! Yeah? I have to tell you some thing. I am, oh, almost sexual. Oh, <laughs> Christ. Uh, is there a support group that I can join to help me come to terms with my own homophobia? Yes, there is. A group which is named P-Flag, parents and friends of lesbians and gays. Oh, Oh, a flag. I'm beginning to like the sound of that. Thank you. What you've just witnessed here is a pre-enactment of events that are about to take place. But unfortunately, it doesn't go that way. Um, Sammy, the next scene in the documentary we see is Sammy sitting outside the house while his mother is pacing back and forth in the living room. And she didn't take it very well, and she's still upset. And he's like, I just want to be let back in. You know, um, and uh, it's a very heavy scene in the film, and it's and and credit to Steve Zahn for doing it so well. The documentary storyline, by the way, climaxes at a network meeting where Michael pitches everyone a show called Reality Bites, which is Lelena's documentary, but it's been completely butchered. It's the type of package job that you get from MTV around that time, and to a certain extent, still would. With most of the serious moments that we've seen from the cast since the beginning of the movie taken out of context and made to seem hilarious. And it's a huge slap in the face to what she actually did. And I totally feel her on some level. Although, like I said, if you take this movie as satire, it's once again pointing fun at the earnestness of someone like Lelena. Especially since Michael, well, Michael has a point and he goes after her because she leaves the meeting. She storms out of the meeting and then Michael goes after her and, and he explains to her that they have to consider the audience that they're marketing to. They're not marketing to 
Lillian as peers. They're marketing to people my age or slightly younger at the time, uh, high school kids. And he compares her what she has to meatloaf. Sometimes you got to dress meatloaf up so that the kids actually will want to eat it instead of ew meatloaf, which is bullshit because I fucking love meatloaf. But anyway, um, and she just turns to him and says, "It was never meatloaf." And he says, "All right, maybe that's not good." And then and he he tries to to make her feel better and he obviously just being a typical guy says the wrong thing but it's the eternal struggle the artist versus marketing <laughs> and well seriously lena again you probably should have taken at least one class in marketing or, or been a little more savvy about these things and i'm not trying to shit all over somebody who had an earnest idea that would have really worked but you see through quite a bit of it um when you're 36 and watching this as opposed to 17 and watching this and I know, you know, if some, something that you work so hard on is just cut up and destroyed the way her film is, it's it's tough. It's tough to deal with. So Lelena goes home to wallow in her misery, and Troy um, is there and offers her some comfort, and he professes his love for her. Bye. <sighs> Who cares? Work so hard on them. No? I work so hard. I forget it. Sympathetic. No, you don't. You don't sympathetic. No, I know it sounds stupid, but it really meant something to me. I know it wasn't going to, you know, end world hunger, you know, save the planet, but it just meant something to me. I just don't understand why things just can't go back to normal at the end of the half hour, like on the Brady Bunch or something. Well, because Mr. Brady died of AIDS. Things don't work out like that. I was really going to be something by the age of 23. Honey, all you have to be by the age of 23 is yourself. I don't know who that is anymore. Well, I do. And, and we all love her. I love her. Uh, she breaks my heart again and again, but uh, but I love her. And they end up sleeping together. Uh, Troy, though because he's a complete dickbag, leaves at 8.30 in the morning the next day, and then he pours salt in the wound when Elena shows up at the bar where his band is playing, and Michael shows up and offers to set things right by giving Elena a plane ticket to New York and saying, you know, I'm going to let you fix this. 
Um, Troy tells Michael they slept together, and then he proceeds to do this really, really shit version of Added Up by Violent Femmes, and Lelina just storms out of the bar and storms away. Troy and Michael both go out after her, and Michael just goes off on Troy, talking about how fake Troy is and how he's really not as important as he thinks he is and not an important mind. He's more like a, he's a jackass. He's the court jester he compares him to. Oh, nice job. Very well done. Yeah, I don't want to hear it from you. Yeah, well, I forgot. I'm not qualified to talk to you. I'm sorry I can't be Mr. Uh, hey, look at me. I'm Buddha on the mountaintop. You know what you are, man? You know what you remind me of? You, you like that, 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 that guy with the, you know, with the, the, with the hat and the bells and the little, you know, the court jester. Yeah, right, where everything's so easy to laugh at from a safe distance back in Clever Cleverland. You know what happens to him? They find his skull in a grave, and they go, Oh, I knew him, and he was funny. And the guy, the court jester, dies all by himself. Where'd you hear that, a Renaissance Festival? Besides, everyone dies all by himself. Do you really believe that? Who are you looking for out here? And then Troy disappears. Lelena has no idea where he is. And she eventually finds out that he went to Chicago. Lelena books a flight. She's about to rush out the door when Troy gets out of a cab and tells her about where he was. They reunite at the end of the movie. And we see that they're moving, probably getting their own place together. And the credits roll. But there's one more thing before the movie is done. After some initial credits, we have a scene where a guy named Roy, played by Evan Dando of the Lemonheads, is fighting with his girlfriend, played by Karen Duffy, who was a model at the time and also an MTV VJ. And we get this. Roy, why are you doing this to me? I know we can be happy together. You'll chill at times. Right now I need someone who understands what my music and the band mean to me. But it's just music, Roy. I'm a human being with deep feelings who feels things deeply. Music is feeling, babe. The band may be a small dream, but it's the only one I've got. I'm Audi 5000. I'm Audi 5000. <laughs> the soundtrack, by the way, is noteworthy. It's not as landmark or as important as the single soundtrack in terms of rock history, but it's got a decent number of songs that made it one of the 1990s soundtracks that everyone just had. Um, I'll just list the songs. I'll tell you a little bit about where they are in the movie before moving on to the next section of the episode. First, we've got My Sharona by The Knack, which gets played in the gas station convenience store and results in some impromptu dancing. This song was a hit way back in the 80s. It made a bit of a comeback as a result of this movie, but it speaks to the generation depicted here's love of nostalgia, to be honest. Second is the Juliana Hatfield 3 song, Spin the Bottle, which I think is their most famous song. It's played in the background of a scene where Vicky is at the Gap telling Lelena about her parents, and it's a modern rock mall music in a sense. Um, it's also it's been used in a couple of other things over the years too. It's one of those songs you're familiar with, even if you're not familiar or with or a fan of the group that sings it. 
Bed of Roses by the Indians plays in the stereo at the bar between songs after the love scene where Lelena goes to see Troy and his band. Uh, the next song, When You Come Back to Me by World Party, which I played earlier in the episode, sounds a lot like Young Americans by David Bowie. And I think that's intentional. Uh, that's played during that going to work montage I mentioned, the one at the beginning of the film with the Renee Zellweger uh, cameo. Track five on the soundtrack is Going, Going, Gone by the Posies. This plays over the last scene of the movie, the uh, Evan Dando uh, um, television show thing. The Posies one of those bands I remember in the 90s who would pop every once in a while, usually on a soundtrack, but never really seemed to stick around or be memorable enough to stick around. And the next song on the soundtrack overshadowed that and a number of other songs on the soundtrack, and that's Stay by Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories. That song runs over the end credits and is very connected to the film because Ethan Hawke was friends with Loeb. He directed the song's video, and he actually does get a lot of credit for putting her on the album because she was not signed by any label. In fact, this was the first song by an unsigned artist to go number one on the Billboard charts. Uh, It did in the summer of 1994, and I think the only other artist to ever actually achieve that was recent. It was Macklemore. Um, Otherwise... There was, there, there hasn't been another otherwise than him and Lisa Loeb. There hasn't been an unsigned artist to go number one in in history. I've actually written a blog post um, on the song in the past. It's called "And You Say Stay." I wrote it a couple of years ago. I'll provide a link in the show notes so you can hear my thoughts on it as well as how the song really it does have a personal connection for me. Um, moving on, we have All I Want Is You by U2, which most fans of U2 will actually recognize as the closing track to Rattle and Hum. Here it's used in a montage after Troy takes off for Chicago, and both he and Elena are all angsting all over the place about how badly things they went after they slept together. Crowded House brings us back up tempo with Locked Out, a song that's pretty good and is more Gap Muzak. Spinning Round Over You is a song by Lenny Kravitz, who had just broken through big time with Are You Gonna Go My Way. Uh, this one's played during the whole In Your Face meeting that Lelena storms out of. Ethan Hawke actually does have a song on the soundtrack. Um, he was part of a band called Hey, That's My Bike in the movie. And uh, as the lead singer of Hey, That's My Bike, uh, he sings I'm Nothing, which is basically Troy's crap set to lyrics. Dinosaur Jr.'s Turnip Farm comes after Troy's whining and is used during Lelena's long stay on the couch while watching In Your Face TV, uh, which is also where we hear Me Fi Me's revival. Tempted 94 is a re-recorded version of Tempted by Squeeze, the 1980s group responsible for such songs as Pulling Muscles from a Shell and Black Coffee in Bed, although this is clearly their best-known song. Um, I, I'm a fan of Squeeze. I, I or at least I have their singles collection. It's it, it's worth picking up. Um, they're they're a really really good group. Uh, this is of course like as I mentioned, what Lelena and Vicky are singing along to when Lelena flicks her cigarette out the window, causing Michael to crash into her car. Finishing out the soundtrack is a cover of "Baby I Love Your Way" by Big Mountain. Uh, now this does not appear in the movie at all. In fact, Peter Frampton's version plays on the radio while Michael and Elena are talking about big gulps. But from what I understand, this song was included on the soundtrack as part of the deal made to get the Lisa Loeb song on the soundtrack. Um, 
I think the record label had was trying to push Big Mountain, or or at least this song they thought they had a hand on their hands. And actually, it's not a Ryan for Fergosi trade. It's actually both sides made out well in the deal because the Big Mountain version of Baby I Love Your Way got a ton of airplay and charted big time. It hit number six on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the mainstream Top 40. And the Lisa Loeb song Stay also hit number one. So, um, you know, good deals all around. It's one of those things that made this soundtrack um, sell a ton of copies when even the movie did not do well at the box office. And it's a pretty good soundtrack. It's an eclectic collection of pop and rock from the 90s as well as the 70s and 80s. And the pop style of the soundtrack fits the movie pretty well. And like I said, it sold better than the movie did at the box office. But aside from this movie being so entertaining, even 20 years after its debut, why do I find it so important? We'll find out after this. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases. We don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. Ooh, baby, I love your way every day, yeah, yeah. I have to admit that I, I cheated a little when I approached this episode. I've actually covered Reality Bites uh, in some regard three times on the blog. Um, I already mentioned the Lisa Loeb story stay about Stay, although I don't think I really talked about Reality Bites in itself. I think I mainly focused on the song. But about a year ago, I dug up my very first column from my high school newspaper. And, and the, the column was the piece was titled Generation X Is, and followed up that piece with a piece called Being Michael Greats, where I wrote about how 20 years down the line or 19 years down the line, I identified more with Ben Stiller's character than Ethan Hawke's. And I provided links to those in the show notes as well if you want to go back and read them. I've already talked a little bit about Jonathan Bernstein and Gen Xers, although he doesn't say much more than a few sentences about it. Um, it's in it's in a whole kind of opening to a chapter where movies in the early 90s about teenagers didn't do very well at the box office. Chuck Klosterman, on the other hand, has a little more to say about it in Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. In the same essay that I mentioned in Singles, uh, which is called... And I'm vamping for time here because I got the book in front of it. Sulking with Lisa Loeb on the ice planet Hoth. He has mentioned, I think this is the the one where he mentions uh, singles, but um, he he talks about the scene where where Darth Vader, no, I'm your father. And uh, he says, in this same scene, Darth Vader tells Skywalker he has to make a decision. He can keep fighting a war he will probably lose, or he can compromise his ethics and succeed wildly. Many young adults face a similar decision after college, and those seen as responsible, quote-unquote, inevitably choose the latter path. However, an eight-year-old would never sell out. Little kids will always take the righteous option. And that's what's intriguing about Gen Xers is they never really wavered from that decision. Luke's quandary in The Empire Strikes Back is exactly like the situation facing Winona Riders in 1994's Reality Bites. 
Should we? Should she stick with the nice, sensible guy who treats her well, Ben Stiller, or should she roll the dice with the frustrating boho bozo who treats her like crap, Ethan Hawke? For a detached adult, that answer seems obvious. For the people who were 21 when this movie came out, the answer was just as obvious, but completely different. As we all know, Winona went with Hawk. She had to. When Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert reviewed Reality Bites, I recall them complaining that Ryder picked the wrong guy. As far as I could tell, choosing the wrong guy was the whole point. You don't often see Reality Bites mentioned as an important or even particularly good film. But it grows more seminal with each passing year. When it was originally released, all its gap jokes and AIDS fears and Lisa Loeb songs merely seemed like marketing strategies and ephemeral stabs at insight. However, it's amazing how one film so completely captured every hyper-conventional ideal of such a short-lived era. Reality Bites is a period piece in the best sense of the term. And in the same way I have a special place in my heart for the first film I saw inside a movie house, I reserve a special place in my consciousness for the first film a Sono unabashedly directed toward the condition of my own life. I was graduating from college this spring, Reality Bites was released, and even, though it didn't necessarily seem like a movie about me, it was clearly a movie for me. Uh, and then he gets into comparing it to singles, which I've talked about. Um, and, you know, he says, uh, singles was just a normal romantic comedy that happened to have a sounder on the soundtrack, which I mentioned in the singles episode. Reality Bites was an equally mediocre movie, but it validated a lot of mediocre lives, most notably my own. And as I stated earlier, all the cliches about Generation Xers were true. The point everyone failed to make was that our whole demographic was comprised of cynical optimists. Where, Whenever my circa 1993 friends and I would sit around and discuss the future, there was always the omnipresent sentiment that the world was on the decline, but we were somehow destined to succeed individually. Everyone felt they would somehow be the exception within an otherwise grim universe. This is why Ryder had to pick Hawk. Winona made the kind of romantic decision most people my age should have made in 1994. She pursued a path that was difficult and depressing, and she did so because it showed the slightest potential for transcendence. Not coincidentally, this is also the Jedi's path. Adventure? Excitement? The Jedi craves not these things. However, he does crave something greater than the bloodedless existence of his father. Quite simply, Winona Ryder is Luke Skywalker, only with a better haircut and a killer rack. As for the film as a whole, and as for me, I'm amazed at how it stuck with me uh, for the last 20 years and how seriously I took it back when I was 17. Now, on some level, looking back, I wasn't surprised that I took this movie seriously when I was 17. I was a typical earnest teenager, the type who, while I could be sarcastic and I didn't take everything ultra-seriously, still had this sense of romanticism about what life was going to be like. And, well, this movie spoke to me in a way because I guess I saw it as a loss of innocence type of story, or maybe I'd just been too affected by the catcher in the rye. But really, what was it? What was it about this movie that spoke to me as a 17-year-old, really? I think I found the answer in doing prep work for this episode. Uh, there was one funny piece on Jezebel, where one writer, I think it was Lindy West, rewatched the movie. She called it a manual for shitheads. And on some level, it is. When you watch this movie in mid-30s, you realize how insufferable everyone kind of is. But like I already said everyone's insufferable at 22. I was a complete whiny bitch when I was 22. Every time I think about it, I want to go back in time and punch the shit out of myself for being so. But then a friend on Facebook uh, posted a BuzzFeed list of 22 signs you're stuck between Gen X and Gen Y. Number 15 was you saw Reality Bites and were sure that was what your 20 were going to be like over an animated gif of Winona Ryder and Jeannie Garofalo singing along to Tempted. 
And then number 16 was, and then it totally was, over a picture of Winona Ryder or the caption her saying, I was really going to be something by the age of 23. And I looked at this and the rest of the list, which perfectly describes my interaction with the generational labeling in popular culture. I'm sort of on the cusp in a sense. And said, that's it. Just like movies like Fast Times Ridgemont High and The Breakfast Club kind of sort of inform my opinion of high school, Reality Bites kind of sort of inform my opinion of being on my own for the first time. I was 17. By the time I turned 22, we were in the middle of a dot-com boom, things were much different, but at 17, this was like 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 I was looking up at my cool older cousin or something and being like, oh, that's what my life is going to be like in a few years. Now, I wasn't naive enough to think I was going to be exactly like this movie, but thinking about myself at 22 and 23, I was living in a mildly decent apartment. I didn't have a roommate, and by the time I turned 24, I was on my third job since graduation, having quit my first one because I didn't like it, and then getting laid off from the second. I'd already met my my wife. We had a social life, but there really was a bit of that reality bites attitude or atmosphere. And that's why I will still pop this movie in every once in a while and I'll, and I have such a nostalgic fondness for it even if it is incredibly flawed and now I'm not so sure you try to tell me that I'm clever that won't take me anyhow or anywhere with you you have reached the end of another episode of pop culture affidavit all music clips or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. You say-